1 Corinthians chapter 2. And we're in a study of 1 Corinthians, and, and we're moving right along. And uh, I know you're, I'm, I'm proud of myself for getting through 1 Corinthians in two sermons. Uh, we're not, you know, we didn't take one verse at a time, something like, like we did in Jonah. We might, we might take some pauses here in 1 Corinthians, hear me. But we're going to keep this thing moving. Uh, there's 66 books to cover, and we've made it through two of them. So uh, um, we're, we've got some ground to cover. So, but we want to be we want to be true to the text. And so, we we saw last week that uh, uh, the the foolishness of the cross in the world's eyes to the world, the cross is is foolish. Literally, the word there is moronic. That that we would have never ever ever designed salvation and the cross the way that God did. And and today. Paul continues that thought with a specific example. He uses himself as a specific example. If you're going to boast, as 1 Corinthians 1.31 says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul, Paul's life, his ministry was lived out in such a way that, look, if you're, going to, if you're going to boast, you're not going to boast in me. If you're going to boast in my preaching, it's not going to be in the way that I do it. It's going to be the power of the cross. And Paul literally was willing to empty himself so that God would get the glory and the credit for everything that was going on in his life. And I want to read First uh, Corinthians 2 here to get us going, and, and then we'll uh, have some comments about the passage. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not, under, it does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And Paul is, Paul is continuing what he started in chapter 1. And he's, and he's, he's, letting, he's letting the Corinthians know here that they lived in a culture that valued wisdom, that valued flowery speech, that val valued form over content. And, and Paul is, is letting them know here, I'm not against wisdom. Matter of fact, you ought to be wise. 
but it's where you get your wisdom. It's where you get your wisdom. And it's what wisdom do you really value? You know, he lived in a culture that, that they, were all, they wanted wisdom, they, but they were searching for it in all the wrong places. And the spirit of that day had infiltrated the church. And they became more, more consumed with form over content, with, with, with the right words over who they really were. That to give the right appearances in public, all the while in private, they weren't at all who they purported to be in public. And that's the kind of people that Paul's writing to. And when he preached, they came to him and they came to the wrong conclusion that he didn't care about wisdom. He says, no, I care a lot about wisdom. I just care about the right wisdom. I care about where you're getting your wisdom. And see, the challenge for us is, even as believers, as we're going to see here today, we can come to a point where we value worldly wisdom over godly wisdom. We value the things of the world more than we value the things of the word. That's the very real danger for all of us, and that's what Paul addresses here. And, and, and Paul is talking about true wisdom. He, he's trying to, as best as he can here to show the Corinthians the folly, the foolishness of earthly wisdom, the foolishness of throwing yourself into the ways of the world for believing the ways of the world. He's saying it's foolishness. The, the world's wisdom, he's going to contrast it. The world's wisdom focuses on self, Think about how many words in our culture, how many, how many books out there and how many um, really psychologies and all that begins with self. Self-fulfillment, self-actualization, self-this, self... It's all focused on self. And Paul contrasts that with a, with a godly wisdom that focuses on the cross. The world says focus on self. The Bible says crucify self. Die to self. Chris Basham's number one problem is self. Self. I get in the way. That's why John said in John 3.30, I must increase, I mean, he must increase, but I must decrease. I need to get out of the way. And, and that's what Paul is dealing with here. He's saying the, the wisdom that Paul puts forth here, it's, it's focused on the cross. True wisdom will focus on the cross, and we're going to see that. And, and the self, he says... You can't get to God on your own. You can't understand God on your own. He's going to have to reveal himself and he's going to have to avail you to understand what he's revealed about himself. He's going to have to, to use this. And he's done that. He's given you the spirit. But that's what Paul is saying here. You're not, going to, you're not going to discover God on your own. He's got to reveal himself. And in that revelation is true wisdom. True wisdom. And the question to them and the question that I want to answer for us today and I want to ask today is who will you believe? You're going to believe the word, or you're going to believe the world. Which system will you value? Which system are you valuing? The world or the word? And so, so with that, let's jump right in. Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the first thing I want us to see here is true wisdom is centered around Jesus Christ and the cross. In verses 1 through 9, that's really the central thought that Paul makes there in these nine verses. True wisdom is centered around Jesus Christ and the cross. Everything about Paul was contrary to the ways of the world. And, and he shows that through what he teaches. He says, let him who boasts, verse 31 of chapter 1, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul's work, his preaching, his ministry were totally stripped of self-sufficiency. He was totally in reliance upon the Spirit of God. And he says, it makes it clear in verse 5, why did I do that? 
so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. He says, I don't want you, I don't want you trusting in me. I don't want you depending on me to bring you along. I want you relying on the Spirit. I want you giving credit to God. I don't want you giving credit to me. And, and later on, he's going to talk in chapter 3. Uh, people would say, I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and all these things. And he says, hey, those guys didn't die for you. None of those guys died for you. Jesus Christ died for you. Follow him. Paul, Paul does not want, in any way, shape, or form, he does not want them to trust him. And, and Paul reflects, he's, he's really reflecting back upon his, he, had, he spent about 18 months in Corinth. And you can see that in, in Acts 18. You can go there and read about it. But he reminds them on how he did not come. He says, when I came to you, brethren, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming you the testimony of God. If you would have heard Paul preach, he would not have overwhelmed the Corinthians with his style, with his use of big words. Paul came about one truth, that he came with one truth, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Paul, all Paul was offering was the truth about, about who God is and what he had done for sinners. That's what Paul at the cross, he was focused on the cross, what God had done for sinners at the cross. That was his message. And, and it's a style that would have not have been very popular in Paul's day. In, in Paul's day in Corinth, there, there were Greek orders and they spoke with, with great quotations and, and literary styles and, and big fancy words and and uh, they, they probably would have been good at Jeopardy. I don't know. I watch Jeopardy every now and then, but I, I have a hard time with that show because I never can get the questions right. I mean, I pray that they would put the Bible category up there or sports. Outside of that, it's like, yeah, well, I, don't, I got nothing. And, and Paul is saying, that's okay. The, the orators of his day were, were, were very focused on style. No content. It was all style. They looked good, they sounded good, they used the right words, they, everything, they, they had practiced. But their content was zero. Zero. And, and Paul came to them and utterly rejected this. I mean, you could imagine, you know, it would be like me coming up after a David Platt or a John MacArthur that are just the king of kings as far as preachers go. They're very popular and, and it's like, okay, here's Chris. And that Paul comes up after them and he says, hey, I'm not preaching that way. I'm not preaching the way that your, your guys in Corinth preach. And, and, and it's not that Paul couldn't. Paul was a very, very well-educated rabbi. He knew Greek. He, could have spoke, he knew Hebrew. He knew Aramaic. He knew Latin. He was trained by Gamaliel, the best of the best. Paul was on his way. He had everything before him. And he laid it all down at the cross. Paul's simplicity, it wasn't due to a lack of knowledge. It wasn't because he was ignorant. It wasn't as if that was his, his one sermon that he could give and he stuck to it. No, it was because that was where the power was. It was where that's what people needed to understand. Paul rejected the worldly approach and instead of making much of himself, he made much of the cross. He could have made much of himself. He was that well trained. I mean, you can look at um, Philippians. He left it all behind. He, he turned it all away. Everything that was to his credit, it says there, I, I think it's Philippians 3, that he counted it as loss. He counted it as waste. Why? So that they would trust God. 
so that he could make much of God. Paul says, Paul says, I, I pro- came to you proclaiming, verse 1, the testimony of God. Paul, the word testimony there is a legal word. It, it talks about a court of law. And, and rather than engaging in a war of words, rather than trying to just, just impress you with his style, Paul simply went to the evidence. He said, look at the cross. I give you the cross. Forgetting all that other stuff, I give you the cross. Paul simply bore witness. All he did was bear witness to what God had done on their behalf at the cross. That was his sole point. And and he knew this truth. He knew the simplicity of it, but he spoke it with boldness. It was a simple truth, and yet he spoke it boldly because it was the truth. Paul, Paul didn't come preaching something that he had made up. It wasn't something based on his own wisdom. It wasn't his own testimony. It was literally God's testimony about God. That's what Paul came to preach. It wasn't, it wasn't a, you know, hey, what does this mean to you type of thing. It was, no, what does this mean? Paul came to, you, came to them preaching the message of God from God. It was, that was what he came with. It wasn't from him. It wasn't something in his wisdom he had made up or come up with. It was simply God's testimony about God. And what mattered to Paul was what God said, not what they thought it said. And Paul's testimony was about what God had done in sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for their sins. And he kept that as the focus. And verse 2 says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's a good word for us. Focus on the cross. That's what Paul would say. Church, you want to be unified? Focus on the cross. Church, you want to, you want to get over your, your divisions? You want to get over your, 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 your arrogance and your pride and all that? Focus on the cross. You don't focus on the cross and, and remain arrogant. You don't focus on the cross and stay proud. It's humbling. We saw last week that the cross humbles us. But not only that, it's at the cross where we all can agree. We're all unified at the cross. The reality is that Satan tries to get us sidetracked and has, does and has gotten us sidetracked on all these ancillary things in Christianity. And Paul says, I'm not, I'm not dealing with that. I'm here to tell you about the cross. And the challenge for us is we can get more sidetracked on who's a Calvinist and who's an Arminian and, and we can get more sidetracked on whether you're pre-mill or all-mill or post-mill and, and whether you're pre-trib or post-trib and, and we, on these social issues and, and we can divide over alcohol and oh, you, you move your feet to two, four time, that's called dancing and you can't dance and all this other stuff. And Paul says, I, did Paul preach about that? Absolutely he preached about that. He addressed all that stuff. But it wasn't central. Because the reality of what Paul knew is this. When you focus on the cross, all that other stuff falls in line. All that other stuff takes its place. I, I, don't, I don't necessarily, I'm not an expert on when he's coming back, but I do know this, he's coming back. And I, and I, I tell Dr. Enns all the time, I'm a, I'm a pan-millennialist. I just know it's going to pan out in the end. I just trust him. I'm not a, I don't know about pre and post. I just trust the one who's coming back. To be sure, it's in here, and I say that lightly just to get him riled up, but the point is, Christ didn't come to to talk about dancing. He didn't come to make a big deal about all these social issues. He came to die on the cross to deal with our sins. Because that's what needed to be dealt with. And, And I'm not saying 
people hear me say that. I'm not saying those aren't good issues. I'm not saying, you, you have, if you know my heart, you should know theology. You should know what this Word of God says. You should not be ignorant of this Word. But we can't make the side issues the main issue. We've got to keep the main thing the main thing, and it's the cross. You ought to have convictions about those things I just talked about. You should. I have strong convictions about those things. But they're not the main thing. The main thing is the cross. And I've known this. When I keep the cross central in my life, those other peripheral things tend to fall to the wayside and not seem as big a deal as when I'm focused on them alone. And Paul says the thing that we need to be focused on is the cross. What must remain central in our lives is the cross. I mean, we're going to... And, and people have asked me, why are you dealing with 1 Corinthians? Because you're going to have to deal with... You're going to have to deal with head coverings and divorce and remarriage and, and liberties and tongues and all these stuff. We're, we're going to walk through and deal with them. But hear me, don't make them the main thing. Don't be divisive over, over your stance on divorce and remarriage, over your stance on tongues. We're not going to be divisive over that. We're going to be unified. And we may vary. We probably will vary a little bit. But that's okay because one place we can all be concerted is the cross. And that's what Paul says, the cross, keep it central. Th those areas, Satan wants to become divisive in those areas, and he says, don't do it. Stay focused on the cross. I mean, Paul, he, he makes this statement, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It wasn't that that's all Paul preached about, but that was central. You read his letters, he spoke on a lot of different things. But they were never isolated from the cross. And if we would keep our marriage, if we would keep all our, our friendships, if we would keep our parenting, if we would keep all these things centered on the cross instead of centered on us, Paul knew it would have a huge impact on our lives. He says, stay focused on the cross. Never isolate anything in your Christian walk from the cross. And, and that is the point. The cross answers the why behind everything we do as believers. The cross. That's the answer to the why. When somebody asks you why, the answer is the cross. The cross is what was, done, it's what was done for us. It is the central motivation for everything we do. And you see that all throughout Scripture. Parenting, marriage, your work, all that is to be built around the cross. Look, just flip with me in your Bibles. I, I didn't give them to these to put on the screens. I, I flip over to chapter Ephesians chapter 5. and, and if, I'll, I'll just read them when I get there for the sake of time. I want you to see that the cross and Christ are central to all these areas. Wives, your role as a wife. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 5. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Where's the centrality there? It's the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. He himself being the Savior of the body. Listen to this. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husband in everything. Who's the... Where was Christ most submissive? The cross. Cross. Christ is central. Husbands, you're not getting off the hook. Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ... I'm smarter than that. I ain't going to leave it on the wives. I'm going to move on and beat up the husbands a little bit here too. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. Look, where did Christ give himself up for his bride? It says, husbands, give yourself up for your bride. Where did Christ do that? 
The cross. The cross. The cross was the place where he gave himself up for his bride. What about work? Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Where was Christ's central work? The cross. The cross. Why do, why do we work hard the way we work hard? Because of Christ, to glorify Christ. Ephesians 6, 1, parenting. Or, or children, rather. Children, you want, to know, you want to know why you obey your parents? Children, Ephesians 6, 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Guess what? The cross was an act of obedience for the Lord to His Father. God designed the cross. He ordained the Christ. And Christ obeyed and went to that cross. We obey our parents. Why? Because it honors the Lord. You can go to Titus 2. We've looked at there before. Everything that we do revolves around the cross and how it reflects upon the cross. It is what first God did for us and now our response is to live accordingly. Without the cross, Christianity is void of all. Why do I, why do I love Karen? Why do I seek to love I don't do a good job of it sometimes, but why do I seek to love her as Christ? Because the cross. Because I want to love her in a way that's worthy of the cross. I, 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 I can fall in the trap. Even, even yesterday, I, I coach a, a soccer team. Some of your kids are on it. We had smoked everybody, 2-0. and oh, I'm thinking, hey, man, I got this thing down. I happen to have two college soccer players as parents that helped me. Yesterday, the ball just didn't go in the goal. But guess what? I have to be careful not to coach them so it makes much of me, but to coach them so that they understand the cross. Not to make much of me, but to make much of the cross. That win or lose, guess what? You do your best. Why? Because God has skilled you to play soccer. He's given you the ability to play soccer, so guess what? You play it to the glory of the Lord. Win or lose. I'll never go home dissatisfied that way because I glorified Christ. I did what I could. The ball just sometimes doesn't go in the hole. And why we stick with hard-to-love spouses, why we're friends to the friendless, why we love the unlovable, why we go all over the world, why did we go to Brazil and to a people that we'll probably never see again that don't speak our language, why, why did we do all that? It's because of the cross. We weren't looking for a vacation. We weren't looking for a place to get away. Esther certainly wasn't looking for a vacation. But we do that for a cross. The answer is the cross. Why do we worship even in bad times? Why do we worship God even when things don't go the way we think they should? Because the cross tells me that God loves me. That God is for me. That no matter what, He's not against me. It's the cross. Interesting, you look in verse 2. For I determined nothing to know, uh, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul uses the perfect tense in the Greek for the word crucified. And it, and it suggests, here's the importance of that. Paul was not focused on so much of the historical event of the cross, but the ongoing effects of the cross. What he's saying is, the cross's power and effectiveness is just as powerful and effective today as the very day it happened. The same effect that it had on those group of believers that were sitting in that upper room, when they realized that their Messiah was not dead, is the same power that's available to every single one of us. This is not a historical fact 
that lost its power many, many years ago. He says it's just as powerful today as it was the day it happened. It has that much impact on our lives, as just like it happened yesterday. The cross has not lost its power in spite of what the world says, in spite of the world looks at it as, as historical Jesus and all. No, no. It's powerful today. It's as powerful today as the day it happened. And Paul is reminding them, the death of Jesus Christ covers everything. The cross is always relevant and effective. Always. No matter, what, no matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're struggling with, go back to the cross. Go back to the cross. It's the solution for everything that you're going to deal with. It's the cross. It doesn't mean things are going to go well, but it reminds you that eventually they're going to be made right. They're going to be made right because our Savior lives. We have a Savior that ever lives to make intercession for us, the Bible says. We have a Savior that sits at the right hand of the Father who is our advocate, who defends us against Satan's accusations. We have a Savior that looked at, looked at the cross and said, It's finished. Your salvation is purchased. It's done. It's done. The debt is paid. And Paul did this not so they would see him as wise, but so they would see God. Paul wanted their faith to rest on God. And sometimes, we've all done it where we've had a kid who is sick, and, and what they want is a cookie or a treat, but what they need is medicine. And any good parent, what do you do? You give them medicine. I, I, have, I have kids, I've told you before, if you ask them what they want to eat, that's a dangerous proposition. It's not going to be anything healthy. Guaranteed. But as a parent, guess what? I've got to give you what you should have, what you need, not what you want. And, and that's what Paul is doing. You know, we come here and we want to hear other things. We want, we want self-help and this and that. And Paul says, that, that doesn't satisfy. That's like your kid is starving. That would be like me giving you a Snickers. It may satisfy for a little while, but you're going to come up wanting in about an hour. And you're going to be malnourished. What you need is the Word, and that's what Paul gives. And, and we as a church, we need a singular focus on the cross. Chris Basham, as your pastor, needs a singular focus on the cross. And Paul says, it, 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 it's not that it's going to make everything hunky-dory. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And in my message and my preaching, they were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. It's believed that Paul himself dealt with a very severe physical uh, 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 something, sickness. That, that it, it may have been something of his eyes, it may have been something else that made it difficult to even watch and listen to him preach. It's possible that that's the thorn in the flesh he's referring to in 2 Corinthians 12. And, and Paul says, hey, I, 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 it, didn't, it didn't mean everything went well for me here on earth. But what it does mean is that everything's going to well, go well in the end. Focus on the cross. And, and, and Paul says... They were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And he says he's much trembling. It's a woeful thing. It's a scary thing to stand up here and to say, thus says the Lord. I, every morning, without, I, every Sunday, I mean, I'm, I'm coughing and people say, Do you, are you sick? Do you have a cold? No. It's because I'm scared to death to stand up in front of you and say, thus says the Lord. It's a big deal. I don't eat a whole lot on Sunday mornings. 
because it's it's scary. And 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 when I come here, I don't want I don't want y'all to walk away saying, "Oh man, Chris is so good." I want you to walk away here saying, "God is so good. God is good." I got nothing to offer you. If it were not for something that God is doing in my life, I would not be standing up here in front of you. I would want to be sitting out there. And, And I can tell you, whatever power is here, it's of God. It's something that God is doing. But when I'm when I when we lean on the word of God, when we focus on the cross, we can have great boldness like never before. Look at first Peter four eleven. He says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Listen to this. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion and forever and ever. Amen. Whatever you do, Paul is going to say that later on in 1031. Whatever you do, whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Why? Because it's Him who provides the power. And, and you can look, look with me at verse 5. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Paul is contrasting the power of God and man's wisdom here because you can't have both. You're going to have to choose. Do you want to please the world or do you want to please God? Do you want to build your life on the world or do you want to build your life on the word? First, Matthew 6.24 says, No one can serve two masters. You're either going to love the one or hate the other. You can't be divided. 1 John 2.15 says, If anyone loves the world or the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And Paul goes on here in verses 6 through 9 to explain to us exactly why we should choose the wisdom of God. Look at verse 6. Yet we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature. What he's saying there is to the world, the mature here are... are, are you know, they're believers. He's saying, you know, you're not, you're not, we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature. Wisdom, however, not of this. We do speak wisdom, he says, I'm sorry. He's saying to Christians, it is wisdom. To non-Christians, it's not going to seem like wisdom. A wisdom that's not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. And, and what he says there, he says, literally, God's wisdom is eternal. Why should we build our life on God's wisdom? Because it's eternal. It's not passing away. It's not like today. Worldly wisdom, here today, gone tomorrow. I guarantee you there are going to be books come out next month that refute everything that was written in books this month. And the so-called experts of this world are going to write, continue to write stuff. They say, well, we were wrong there. Let's do this. We were wrong here. God's Word has no revisions, no edits, no redos. It's eternal. It's just as effective today as the day it was written. And Paul contrasts it with worldly wisdom. Look at verse 7. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. He says God's wisdom is good. It's good for us. It's to our benefit. I mean, we live in an age that the Old Testament saints would have given anything to live in. Anything. I mean, we have resources upon resources upon resources to study this word. To learn. I mean, we have the full, what God wanted. We have that full revelation, which is Christ. The Old Testament saints would have loved to have been in our shoes. And it, and it satisfies. It gives us hope. Worldly wisdom leaves us empty. It leaves us wanting more. I can give you six steps, but guess what? At the end of those six steps, you're going to need six more steps. Or we can fall on the cross which is ever sufficient. 
verses 8 and 9, he says, The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, Things which eye has not seen nor ear has heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. God's wisdom is supernatural. It's supernatural. It's beyond us. It's bigger than us. And look what he says. To not follow it, to not know it, to not understand it, can have tragic, tragic consequences in our lives. He's he's saying, they didn't understand it, and guess what they did? They killed their Messiah. That was the consequence of not understanding it. They crucified their Messiah. Now granted, in God's sovereignty, that's what He had ordained, but that's the consequence of not knowing. And God's wisdom is radically different from this world. The world is not going to want it. They're not going to accept it. And the, the irony here, and the irony for us as well, the tragedy really is, they're not living, the Corinthians are not living according to the reality that God has given them. Their living was not due to any insufficiency in the Word of God. It was their own insufficiency. Everything they needed had been, been, been made available to them. 2 Peter 1.3 says the same thing, seeing that His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything's there. They're saved, but they're not living as if they're saved. They're they're living as if God had left them as orphans or or left them ill-equipped. And and that's the danger for us as well, that we can live, that we can miss out on all that God has given us by how we live. We can miss out. All the resources are there, and and we miss out. Look look at Ephesians 3. I'm going to read Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. This is Paul's prayer, and, and a lot of Paul's letters are prayers for his people. But look what Paul prays. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, listen to this, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and to Christ forevermore for all generations. What's he praying there? That you would understand how much God loves you. That you would understand the depth of the way that God loves you. That you would understand everything that he's given you. And so I, I, I pause here for a second of application before we, before we move on to, to, to the second and last point. In your marriage... In your work, in your parenting, maybe in your role as a child, maybe in your schoolwork, maybe in your chores around the house, in everything you do, where's the power resting? Where are you getting your fuel? Where are you getting your power? What would you say the central focus is? Where would you say that you seek to make, who, do you, who or what do you seek to make much of? Is it your acclaim or is it God's acclaim? Why why do you do what you do? Is it so people will say how great you are? Or will people see how great God is? Is there anything in your life and my life that would cause people to stop and think, man, how do they do that? How can they have that attitude in the midst of all this? How, How can they love that person? How can they care about that person? 
How come they do their work in such a way? Man, they really give everything to even the smallest tasks. Man, they give everything to it. You know, how, how, how do these things, how do you think those things in your life and in my life reflect upon the cross? How does your work ethic reflect upon the cross? When people see your marriage, how does that reflect upon the cross? When people see how you love each other and, and love other people, how does it reflect upon the cross? You know, is our life making much of the cross or is it making much of selves? Is our life discrediting the cross or is it bringing credit to the cross? That's what Paul is, is challenging them. You're living in a way that is, that is not up to the standard to which you've been called and that to which you've been equipped. And, and our lives, I pray that our lives, that starting with me, would be cross-centered. That we would do everything because of, it, of the cross and not self. That, that we would not fall in the trap that the Corinthians fell in and pursue form over content. That we would pursue results over obedience. That we would be a people that pursues the cross no matter what. And the truths of Scripture, what Paul is saying here is the truths of this Scripture are true wisdom. They're true wisdom, and that's what he's building to. And we're going to see here in a minute how to understand it. It's what we need. We must believe that, that we must know this word well, and we must live it out. We must know it well. True wisdom is focused on the cross, and that is the central part of this book right here, this Bible, is the cross. True wisdom is focused on the cross. But not only that, true wisdom is given and understood by the Spirit. It's given and understood by the Spirit. That's what Paul teaches here in verses 10 through 16. You won't come to this word and fully value it in your own flesh. A, a non-believer can come to this word, he can pick it up, he can study it, and he can understand the surface, but he will not value it appropriately. That's what Paul is going to tell us. And, and Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to understand whose they are and what they've been given. And they are in a privileged position. In terms of the cross, he's saying, stop acting as, God, as if God has not put the Spirit in you. Stop acting as if you were not fully equipped. And Paul is teaching here wonderful mysteries that God has prepared. And any believer, any believer, any and every believer can understand and appreciate God's word. That's what Paul is saying. You're, you're ignorant of the word, but it's your own doing. You can understand it. You can value it. Because God has given us the spirit to help us value the word, to understand the word. Every single believer can be full of knowledge with regard to this word. And the, the, what Paul is doing here, it's very specific for him. The mystery religions of Greece, they really held that deeper insight and deeper knowledge and, and, and the, to be really spiritual was relegated to only a small few. That only a small few, a handful, could really attain the knowledge that would make you really, really spiritual. And, and Paul is, what Paul says here is he's contrasting that that. That ideology had crept into the church. Oh, and we see today, oh, that's for the pastor. It's the pastor's job to know the word well. It's, it's, the, it's the pastor's job to do this. And Paul holds Christianity up and says, no, no, no. Every single believer, every single believer can know this word well. Every single believer. 
He's going to deal with that in chapter 3. He's going to say, Brethren, I could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not able to receive it. Indeed, you're not even able now. You're still fleshly. He says, you've been, you've been a believer long enough to know the word well. I should have been able to come to you with harder truths, but I'm still having to feed you milk. In Hebrews, he talks about the meat of the word. Every single Christian in this room today has the ability because God has put the Spirit in you to understand the Word well. Will it take work? Yes. Will it take discipline? Yes. But you can know the Word well. He says, For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. That word there literally means continually examines. Every single Christian can know the Word because the Spirit in us continually examines the depths of God and communicates that through the study of the Word. We have no excuse for not knowing the Word. None. And there are huge implications in our life for not knowing this Word well. He says the Spirit searches the very depths of God. And here's the deal. Who knows you better than you? Nobody. No, nobody knows you better than you. Your, your spouse, Karen, may know me well, but she does not know me as well as I know me. I, I know, I, you know, we can be doing something, she said, you mean this? I say, no, I don't mean that, I mean this. No, nobody knows me as well as I know me. And nobody knows you as well as you know you. And, and nobody knows God as well as God knows God. But guess what? God has literally, in the person of the Spirit, put himself in you so that you can know him. That's what Paul is saying here. He has put himself in you so that you can know him. That, that's the beauty. That, that's why when, you know, Paul is showing us here that God has given himself. But, but we must be in the word in order for that spirit to come alive and bring fruit in our lives. You have to be in the word. He's not just going to put himself in you and then it just downloads the word of God. A knowledge of this word doesn't come with spirit. You've got to feed yourself. My heart here in preaching and teaching on Wednesdays is literally to, just like you would do your kids, I want to teach you to feed yourself so that you can feed yourself. I don't want you relying on me all the time. I certainly want to be your pastor, but I don't, I, I, I don't mind the calls, but I want us to know the word well. I want us to be able to be a guy. I want all of us to be in the community to be people that people come to for spiritual answers for truth, for the Word of God. And every single person in this room can know the Word of God really, really, really well. Why? Because God has put Himself in you to make sure that can happen. He has literally given you Himself. When we were in Brazil, uh, obviously in Brazil, or obviously or not, it wasn't obvious to me, I thought they spoke Spanish, but they speak Portuguese. So clearly, not only did I know the language, I didn't even know this, the language they spoke. So I was of no help. I, I had taken about four years of Spanish in, in high school, mainly because it was an easy A, but um, that, that's, that's the problem that I have to deal with in myself. And so, but I, I, don't, I, I know enough to be dangerous, but they, they speak Portuguese. Similar, but, but not the same. Well, when we went down there, a team from PACA, a, a Pan-American Christian Academy, met us, and they were our interpreters. So all of a sudden, because of an interpreter, now us and, two, and other people who had nothing in common, no language, no nothing in similar, we now could hold a conversation. 
we could sit around and communicate and, and talk as if there were no language barrier. And, and everywhere we went, everywhere we went as a group, we made sure that we grabbed somebody from Paca to interpret for us. When we went to the market, when we went on to the villages, everywhere we made sure, hey, I, I make sure I'm not going far from this person right here because they can speak the language. And, and as I was studying this week, I thought, that, that's really what God has done in giving us the Spirit. You're a, you're, a, you're, a, you're a fleshly, finite man. He's an infinite God. He's given us the Holy Spirit as an interpreter so that we can now understand and value what God is saying in this Word. He interprets it for us. And, and just like we never wandered far from the people from Paca, I, I don't wander far from the Spirit. It would, that would be as foolish as me thinking, you know what, I've been doing this for four or five days. I think I'm going to go out onto the island today and I'm going to try it myself. You know, and I've been, I've, been, I've been here for five days. I'm going to go do it. It's foolish. Foolish. And guess what? What did it say to the interpreter every time we went and grabbed them? Who did it give glory to? It gave glory to the interpreter. It didn't say much of Chris. It actually, I was confessing my weakness. I was confessing my inability when I would ask that interpreter to come with me and to help me. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Rely on the Spirit. Rely on the Spirit. When you do that, you're making much of God. You're making much of the Spirit. Don't come and think you've got this on your own. Trust the interpreter that I've given you. And you can look at 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 8. The Spirit has been given to you at the moment of salvation. And the deep things of God, this, thing, this book requires an interpreter. And God has given us an interpreter. The moment you trusted Christ, God gave you the Spirit, literally Himself as a pledge. And the Holy Spirit has been given so that we can understand these words. Originally it was given to the apostles to, so that they would record the word accurately, but it's given to us so that we would understand the word they recorded. And what this means for us is that we don't need more of the Spirit. The Spirit needs more of us. Those interpreters didn't need any more than they had. I needed to make sure I had more of them. They, they had what they needed. Because here's, here's the scary truth for us. We can, we can quench the Spirit. We can grieve the Spirit. We can live in such a way that all the Spirit is there, but we've kinked the hose and we're receiving none of the power that's there because of how we live. Look, look at Ephesians 4.30. I think I gave that to him. Who is given, he's talking about the Spirit, who is given as a pledge of your inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. I think I was one before that. He says, do not grieve the Spirit. In Ephesians 4.29, he says, do not grieve the Spirit. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.19. See if I can bat one out of two here. Do not quench the Spirit. E even though the Spirit is given, we can grieve it, we can quench it, and all the power is there, but we are not receiving the power. And we do this through ignoring the Word, through, through refusing to obey the Word, through not reading the Word. But, but you look at those in contrast to Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. That word filled literally means controlled. You see the parallel verse in Colossians 3.16. It says, let the Word of God richly dwell within you. How, do you. how are you controlled by the Spirit? The Word of God richly dwelling in you. That's how you're controlled by the Spirit. And the Spirit enables us to fully understand what God has revealed about Himself. 
That's what Paul is saying. For who knows the, who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. It, thus he gave us the spirit of God so that we would know his thoughts. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. But we have to live spirit-filled lives in order to do that. And, and Paul fin- finishes here in verse, verses 14... He, by making a contrast between the natural man and, and the spiritual man. And, and he says, the natural man cannot understand spiritual things no more than I could understand Portuguese when I was on that boat. The natural man will not, but a natural man, verse 14, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, listen, for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand, he cannot understand them because they're not spiritually appraised. The unbeliever will not welcome the things of God on their own. That's the point he's making. They won't because they don't see the value. They don't see the value. I mean, that's what an appraiser does. An appraiser assigns accurate values. You know, you, you've probably seen those shows on TV where these people have these things and they go there and they, they think it's junk and the person says, oh, no, that's worth $50,000. Wait, oh, I thought it was, I was about to throw it away. The problem wasn't in the thing. The problem was in what they val- how they valued the thing. The, the problem is not with the word. The problem is with our valuation of the word. So not only does an unbeliever not welcome it, it says an unbeliever doesn't even understand it. Cannot understand it, it says. And, and there are two, two different words in the Greek here for understand. This word means to discern the nature or importance of something. It's not, it's not an intellectual deal, it's an understanding, it's really an appreciation. An unbeliever will not appreciate the cross, will not appreciate the word. And Christians, on the contrary, he says, but he, verse 15, but he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. What he's saying there is, because of the spirit we can see the value in the word. And guess what? The world will not understand why you value the Word. The, word will not, the world will not understand why when you have a 30 minutes or an hour, you would spend time reading a 2,000-year-old document. Because they don't value it. But as a believer, you see the value. And what he's saying there is they're not going to understand the value of that, and they're, they're never going to appreciate what you're doing, but you do because of the Spirit. And you've been given the Spirit so that you can accurately value the Word of God. That you can see what it offers. That you can see the wisdom behind it, the value. You can see that God is loving in what He wrote. That He cares for you. That even when He puts His finger on sin in our lives, that that's for our good. You start to trust Him. And and Paul closes here with a quote from, from the Old Testament. It's Isaiah 40, 13. He says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him. Paul and Isaiah were amazed at the the greatness and the awesomeness of God. And he says, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. He says, We do. Not that we know him perfectly, but but we, we we can value. And he's given it through Christ. He's given us the Spirit. And And the question before us is, Will we adopt the mind and the heart of God as our own? Will we accept His ways? Will we, will we be controlled by the Spirit and value the Word of God? That's the question before us. 
And, and what Paul is saying, if we can drive it home, what Paul is saying and what he's making a point to the Corinthians, but, the, but to us is the truly spiritual person. You want to truly be spiritual? The truly spiritual person is the one who seeks and desires to live out Christ and Him crucified. It's not through knowledge. It's not through this special thing. It's the person who truly seeks to live it out. That's, that's wisdom, he says. The person who wants to make much of God at every turn, that's wisdom. And, and, and I, I pray that we would be desperate for God's Spirit. That we would be a people who don't want anything in our lives to quench the Spirit, to grieve the Spirit, to rob us of the power, to rob us of the ability to understand God's Word. That we would be desperate for it. I, I, I don't want us to be a people that are, you know, if we're not desperate for the Spirit, it, it is an indicator that we've grown content with knowing very little about God. I, my fear is that many of us are content with knowing very little about our Savior. And I was telling Karen real quick, I was telling Karen this week, the thought that's been on my mind, just the illustration, it's illustrated all throughout Scripture, is that of a bride getting ready for her wedding. I, I dare say most of you ladies in here will say, you never put as much effort into anything as you did getting ready for that one day. No one day has probably captivated your attention and your time and your energy as that one day did. I mean, most people, I, I say this, you, you're as beautiful on that day as probably you've ever, ever been. And I say that graciously, but I'm just, my, hear, me, my, hear my point. You know, it was that day. You, you, when you got engaged, the second you got engaged, your mind was already there. Matter of fact, before you got engaged, your mind probably was already on that day. You had most of it planned out. But hear me, the point I'm making is this, that day is the same concept that God says, you wait for my return with that same energy. When I come back, I want a bride that's without spot and without wrinkle. What if we as Christians longed for that day with the same energy and fervor and excitement that we longed for our wedding day? Because in a sense, that is our wedding day. That's the day. And, and we, you, may we be a people that are so desperate for the Spirit, we want to know everything that God has revealed about us. We want to know everything about our groom that God has revealed. And, and not only that, but a willingness. Truly spiritual is a willingness to obey. I pray there'd be a willingness to obey it. So, so, I, so I ask you, how are you living? How are you living? What do you value most? What do you value most? Do, do you feel like right now where you're sitting, you have an accurate appraisal of this word? Do you have an accurate appraisal of this word? The, the world will not understand it. But the Spirit of God will reveal it. Do you have an accurate appraisal of this word? I, I pray that we would. I, I pray that through a study of this word, we will grow and develop an appetite for this word. I pray that we will. But it's only going to be through a filling of the Spirit. The more we eat of this Word, the more we will love and value the Word.